welcome to EHS on Tap. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of EHS Daily Advisor. This week, I talked to Derek Sang, Technical Training Manager at Bulwark, about common myths and misconceptions about fire-resistant clothing. This episode is sponsored by Bulwark. And now, on to the interview. I'm joined today by Derek Sang, Technical Training Manager at Bulwark, and we're going to talk about common myths and misconceptions about FR clothing. Welcome, Derek. Thanks, Jay. Happy to be here. Uh, great to have you, and I was wondering if we could start off by having you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, I'll try and give you the uh, the Reader's Digest version. Uh, been doing this for 25 plus years now, and doing this by by that I mean working in the flame resistant clothing market. I like to tell folks I got started back when you could get any style, any color of navy blue Nomex coverall you wanted, because that was all there was really in the market. So uh, we've come a long way since then. Uh, I've had the good fortune for the last uh, decade plus to uh, represent uh, Bulwark uh, internationally. I've probably done, oh, I think we stopped counting at about 250 plus informational uh, seminars, podcasts, webinars, live events, whatever you want to call it, uh, I think around Oh, gosh, I've gotten almost every state now in at least uh, half a dozen countries. So been doing this a long time. Uh, I have the good fortune, again, of talking primarily on selecting good stuff. Once you've got it selected, uh, how to properly wear it. And then when you're wearing it, obviously maximizing that uh, return on investment because this stuff ain't cheap. Right. Uh, taking proper care of it. So uh, that's primarily been my role. All right. Well. Good thing because this is what we're talking about. Um, so we're in t- it's 2022. Uh, why are we still hearing that FR is too hot? You know, it's funny you ask that because I think in each and every occasion I get uh, time left over for questions, uh, that one pops up. And uh, really, uh, as I said, 25 years ago, we had very, very few choices. And it seems to just take the market a long time to evolve through older technologies. And we also know, you know, like anything else, we had a bag phone back in in the 90s and we have a computer in our palm of our hand today. Uh, Things evolve, change, they get lighter, more efficient. And all those things have happened in the protective clothing world as well. It's just that perception over time is just taking a little while to uh, catch up. And what do I mean by that? We have a lot of programs today that still utilize seven ounce and nine ounce coveralls. And uh, I'd argue with you that probably putting on a coverall may be the one way to exasperate the the concept of being hot and uncomfortable because you're putting it typically over top of something. Right. Or you're, uh, you know, it's not really very comfortable cut. It's not really cut for uh, being efficient because I, it's really funny when we do talk about heat, especially when it comes to clothing, you typically don't get pushback from the waist down. And that may sound a little weird, but if you think about it, we've grown up wearing 9, 10, 12, and 14 ounce, especially denim probably our whole lives. I mean, if you look at retail fabric weights in denim, they're 10 to 12 ounces. And if you look at 
fabric weight when it comes to flame resistant clothing it tends to be 10 to 12 we don't get pushed back from the waist down we get pushed back from the waist up the shirts we have a lot of folks if you think about it you have to be in long sleeves to be properly protective and especially in a environment where you could have exposure to short duration thermal events like arc flashes and flash fires so you want to have long sleeves well how many people are wearing long sleeves in non-PPE environments? So there's a change there. You add fabric now from mid bicep down to the wrist. You have to button things up in order to protect you for it. So it's more of a, I feel constricted. I'm not used to this as it is necessarily to the reality of them being hot. And as I say that, sometimes it's just hot. As you right. and I were preparing yeah. for, this, uh, for this call, First thing you asked me, where are you from? I said, Arizona, and you said it's probably hot. Yeah, it's, it's 108 <laughs> degrees here today, Jay. You, it doesn't matter what I'm wearing, I'm going to be hot. Yep, yep. Um, and then let, just let me just kind of tie up the loose end. When you yep. do look at what do the experts say, when you look at comfort, first and foremost, you can't measure comfort. Comfort's uh, individualized. Everybody has their own a way of being comfortable. It's it's subjective. And what do I mean? Next time you have a company meeting, next time you have more than 20 people in the room, take a look at how everybody's dressed. You'll have polos, t-shirts, long sleeves, hoodies. You'll have multiple layers. And everybody, I'm assuming, has designed to be uh, themselves to be comfortable that day. So when you talk to the experts, single layer clothing, and I'm talking in those weights between five and seven ounces, uh, there is no adjustment for single layer garments, FR or non-FR. When you talk to the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, the ACGIH, who talk about all that the heat stress and, and they talk about uh, the wet bulb globe test, when you look at the heat index and all those, and when you factor in clothing, until you get to multiple layers, it's a zero clothing factor adjustment. So what does that mean? Single layer work apparel does not factor into heat stress uh, one way or the other per the experts. So it all tends to be sometimes your environment is warm and you're going to be regardless of what you're wearing. And then sometimes you're wearing older technology, which you can get better today. We have what we call sub six ounce weights in, uh, in our shirt weight fabrics where you're getting arc protection and flash fire protection in the exact same fabric weight. And if you look at less than six ounces, you're talking retail now. You're no longer in yeah. that it's got to be cumbersome or heavyweight in order to protect me. You're literally down to using fabric weights that we use in our non-FR world. And, you know, heat stress has become such a big issue uh, in the workplace, uh, especially as you know, as a lot of places are really experiencing higher temperatures than before. So um, is the industry kind of addressing that uh, with, with the newer newer products coming out? Absolutely. Um, I wish there was a perfect fiber, a perfect fabric, a perfect combination of fibers. But really what you're trying to do is once you cover up the body, you're really interrupting it, its natural way to uh, move heat away from itself. And then if you get above 98.6 degrees, the body's natural temp, now you only have one cooling mechanism left, and that's your evaporatory cooling system, uh, commonly known as we sweat. So we're, we're, we're taking heat from our core, 
getting it to the outside world to where it can evaporate off and keep our temperatures down. So how do you, what do you want to look for, especially in the PPE world, and when we're talking single layers, you want something that's going to mimic that. You want to have some air permeability so that air can move freely through. You want to have uh, as light a weight as possible. And then you want to have uh, to where you have some moisture wicking. And that's that's where I take the moisture that's accumulating from my sweat and I then transfer it to the outside world and it evaporates, thus mimicking my own cooling methodology. Those fiber combinations are out there today. Uh, the sophistication to where the PPE world is kind of doing what it can capture from the performance world. Uh, it's not as easy as just saying, hey, let's go do what they do in performance right, fabrics right. because those tend to be synthetics and they tend to melt and that's not good in what we do. <laughs> but we want to take what they're uh, able to do, work with those fibers that still protect and can provide that moisture wicking comfort and air permeability. And you see that across all top manufacturers today. Because everybody knows if they can solve that equation for their, their end users, you're going to have folks that uh, not just have to wear it, but they want to wear it. Yeah. And if they want to wear it, you're going to have better compliance. And that makes everybody's job a lot easier. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a runner. And, you know, certainly, uh, you know, 20 plus years ago, when you would, you know, you'd run a race, you'd get like a cotton t-shirt, you know, that would yep. be sort of the typical thing, you know, which, as you know, uh, you sweat in that and it just starts, you know, gets heavy and it hangs off of you and it's just not a great experience. But, you know, as you mentioned, sort of the performance, uh, you know, wicking fabrics have gotten so much better over the last two decades, um, you know, that, uh, you know, there, you'll never see a runner uh, running in like a cotton shirt anymore. You know, there's just so much, so many better types of materials to use. So I, I imagine that that Absolutely. technology is, is being worked into, you know, sort of protective gear as well. Well, I mean, you're mirroring exactly what I said when you, yeah. when we started this particular question, uh, hotter, heavier, older technologies, yeah. lighter, more comfortable. You're maximizing those new uh, fiber solutions that are out there, those fiber combinations. Yeah. If you had told me 20 years ago, I'd be wearing synthetics and plastics, uh, for performance where we would all said, ah, you're crazy. Now it's, you don't even think twice about uh, throwing on your name brand performance where whether it's uh, to go for a run or underneath your shoulder pads as the NFL comes to bear here this right. weekend. Right. You, you look at those technologies. It's not as easy to capture in the FR world because first and foremost, I have to protect you. I have to make sure that I will not ignite and continue to burn. Right. So not all those fibers are available to us, but the work that's getting done to find the ones that can do the protective piece and then blend them with the performance piece, that's what we're seeing more and more of today. Nice. Um, another question that's heard a lot is, will FR wear out? Yes, and, and again, it's a good question. It comes up frequently. Uh, for one, it's a. I'm not really sure sometimes what they're asking, and then secondly, sometimes I, they're not really clear on their understanding of what, how the FR properties are engineered into the garments. So when you look at the, the question as a whole, uh, we understand that all garments wear out. Your garments 
have a, have a shelf life. And sometimes when we communicate to the marketplace, we communicate and we explain for the life of the garment. Well, then people internalize that or that gets, can, that gets miscommunicated or misunderstood to where, oh, so there's a life to this. Uh, yeah, absolutely. We're talking about every shirt, pant, and coverall, just like every shirt, pant in the non-FR world, if you wear it, on a regular basis, it has a natural wear life. It eventually becomes threadbarn, ripped, torn, unwearable. Well, that's the exact same in the FR world, but when we say that, it gets misunderstood or it gets a slight curve to it to where we go, oh, the FR properties are wearing out. The answer today, and again, I'm going to put a little bit of an asterisk on it because it's not categorically 100%, but all of the top manufacturers, all of the top providers, regardless of the fabric, are going to be, that FR engineering is going to be there for the life of that fabric, hence the life of that garment. So that's why we have the disclaimer, it will be FR and protect you for the life of the garment. It's not saying that the FR is going to wear up. The FR is going to be there long after the garment is no longer able to protect you. And the analogy to think about is, uh, as you look at your garment, you want it to be in the best possible condition to ultimately do what we, as the PPE market, build it for. And that's to save your life during a short duration of thermal exposure. My goal is for you never, never to use my garments for what I built them for. I built them to be life-saving pieces of equipment that just happen to take the shape of shirts, pants, and coveralls. Now, at the end of the day, when you look at that, how do you take care of it the day that you need it the most? Well, everything that you've done to that garment leading up to that event uh, is going to impact how well it works. So you want to take care of it. You want to make sure that you are uh, checking it for rips, tears, threadbare, and, and then replace it. Just like you would in the comparison is your fall harness. We have fall harnesses and we have FR clothing. Both of them are designed to save your life, but we don't go around having a lot of falls and we don't go around having a lot of arc flashes and flash fires. Mm -hmm. But if we do happen to fall, we make sure that, that that harness has been checked. There's no rips, cuts, frays. It's not been used before. All those things are going to factoring to make sure that it works the day that you slip and fall from height that it's going to do its job. Now, we are not anywhere near as conscientious when it comes to our FR clothing, but its ultimate job is to, in that rare occasion, there's a short duration thermal exposure, it's going to work as designed, meaning that if it's torn, if it's ripped, if it's not secured properly, if you've not zipped it up, buttoned it down, secured it in things, you're going to be hurt more than, than you need to be. So as you factor all that in, uh, we want to take care of our gear. So long-winded way of getting to recognized manufacturers in today's market in the Western Hemisphere, and we know who they are, the FR properties, that FR engineering is, will not wear out. The garment will wear out long before you have to worry about your FR engineering. Makes sense. <clears throat> um, are the terms inherent and treated still used? That's a good dovetail from where we just came. Um, back those 25 plus years ago, when I started in the marketplace in the early 90s, 
the terms, if they ever were going to be applicable, that's early on when they were applicable because there was really no concept of inherent and treated until uh, we actually had fabric that was uh, engineered at that level, meaning that we applied chemistry, primarily uh, phosphorus and nitrogen, and we permanently adhered it to a cellulosic cotton uh, to where we imparted FR properties at the fabric level. So we took something that was at its core fuel, aka cotton, mm -hmm. we altered it by adding chemistry primarily through an immersion, but the science was and how it worked is it actually adhered to that cotton fiber permanently and was now durable for laundering. So here you now have, quote, fabric that went through a treatment and it's now competing with something that was inherent. Now, that in and of itself is a little misleading. Inherent means to me that you don't have to change anything, that it was born that way. So where is the inherency in something that is like an aramid fiber? Because an aramid fiber started out before we altered its molecular formula, it started out as a nylon, uh, a petrochemical, aka fuel. So you had fuel, plastic, and you had fuel, cotton. One, we changed the molecular formula. One, we went through a, a, a process in which we added chemistry. But at the end of the day, they, they both did the same thing. They did not catch fire and continue to burn. So as those terms kind of started out in the early days, we only had a few options. You had your FR cotton. You had your FR cotton blends, primarily your 8812. So that was in, back in the day. That was Endura and Endura also soft from Westex. You had your Nomex from DuPont. Uh, your PBI Kevlar from Selenase and your Kermel were primarily the five major fabrics that we had access to back in the day. So it was easy to sit there and add labels to them. The problem is as we've evolved, here we are in 2022. I have a fabric that is contains solid cellulosic, a lyocell that is non-FR. I also have I also have Kevlar in there. I have an aramid in there. I have a para aramid in there, and some have FR properties. Some don't have FR properties. Some are in there for strength. Some are in there for comfort. Some are in there for hand. The bottom line is, at the end of the day, I'm going to get an ATPV for an arc rating, and I'm going to get it to pass 2112 for short duration thermal exposure from fire, as in a flash fire. You have no idea with that fiber matrix at the end of the day, how what percentage is inherent and what percentage is treated. If any of it is, what is untreated, what is natural, nor should you really care. <laughs> what you really care about is, is it a proven supply chain partner? Has it been tested and verified for the hazard that I need? And does it have the uh, performance factors that my people want in it? Because how do I label something that is 46% inherent, 37% uh, non-FR cellulosic, and a whole bunch of other uh, ratios in there? Is it inherent or treated? 
Well, we don't we don't know because the terms in and of themselves never had any real uh, outline of what constitutes one or the other. So I say all that to say that they're dated. Mm-hmm. Where are we today? What is more accurate way to represent what uh, FR performance fabrics are today? They're engineered to have FR properties. Now, the engineering can take place in one of three ways. Uh, two of them we've already discussed. It can happen at the molecular level. I actually changed the molecular formula of something like nylon, and now I have an aramid or a paraaramid. I then take something in the fabric configuration, and I add fire retardant chemistry to that, and now I have the FR engineering at the fabric level. The one that we haven't discussed, and it's probably one of the most common that is blended in, is when you look at the fiber level. The easiest example is motocrylics. If you have FR motocrylics and not FR motocrylics, is it inherent? Well, by definition today, if you were to ask most people, they would say that FR motocrylics are inherently flame resistant because once they're finished, there's no additional finishing needed for those FR properties. But if I have to add fire retardant chemistry when that is still a soup, before I extrude it into a fiber, is it truly inherent? So the definitions have a vast amount of interpretation or gray area. So when you look at where does the FR engineering occur, molecular level, fiber level, or the fabric level, and we're gonna blend all three of those with probably some non-FR fibers in there too for comfort and moisture wicking, et cetera, and we're gonna give you a product at the end of the day that's going to self-extinguish and not melt, drip, and add to the injury. And that, by definition, is a flame-resistant garment. So the technology or the engineering on how to get there is varied, and it's far moved away from uh, the old terminology of inherent and treated, even though people still ask, is that inherent or that treated? Or we only spec inherent. Good luck inspecting, uh, uh, specifying only inherent uh, garments because there's no true, there's very few options when you do that. Just as if there's very few options when you go, because everything is blended today, that uh, really what you need to be specifying is market proven performance and specifying that it meets whatever your hazard is. Um, another question for you. Is it okay to just wear FR when we need it? Do you put your safety belt on just before the crash? <laughs> I mean, that's a, I, I don't mean to be cavalier on, on, as, uh, in answering the question, but that's almost the same kind of mindset. Yeah. Um, when you think about it, we always talk about the hierarchy of controls and you look at eliminate, substitute, engineer, uh, admin, all the way down to PPE. And everybody will tell you PPE is the least effective. Last line should be everything above it should be addressed first. The problem is, is in an arc flash or a flash fire, everything above it is gone. You no longer have a chance to eliminate or substitute. Your engineering controls are not working. And admin's definitely not gonna be able to step in and, and stop the arc flash or the flash fire at that particular time. All you have is your flame resistant arc rated clothing and it needs to be on, 
It needs to be in good condition and needs to be worn properly. Otherwise, it's not going to protect you as well as it could. So when you look at the options and you look at the options on the bigger scale, task-based versus daily wear. Why would I put my engineering staff in flame-resistant arc-rated clothing all day, every day, when they only do X amount of, of energized work? Because you want to have a baseline of protection, number one. And secondly, you want to have the confidence that they can still do a whole bunch of things wrong, but at least their clothing is not going to catch fire, continue to burn, and cause catastrophic injury, which ultimately can and may lead to fatality. If I do not catch fire and continue to burn, I can't become a statistic. Why is that? There's not enough of me exposed to be hurt to ultimately kill me. So with that being said, I would want the peace of mind as the company to know that my people at least have a baseline of protection all the time, every time. Even if that exposure is greater than what that shirt or pant is specified or designed for, it still will not continue to burn and cause injury. It may blow open, more of you may be hurt than, than should have, but at least you have a baseline of protection. Secondly, as a wearer, I now have a margin of error that I necessarily didn't have before. If I'm wearing, for example, in a task-based approach, uh, let's say I'm wearing my cotton shirt and my cotton pant, and I'm gonna put my flame-resistant arc-rate coverall over top because when I do energized work, that's what I do. As I do the energized task, I step into the PPE. As I'm done the energized task, I step out of the PPE. Well, if I don't get in and out of that PPE as needed, if I decide that, hey, I'm just going to voltage test this piece of equipment because I've done it all the time, I'm not going to bother climbing into all the gear. Now I'm literally wearing fuel in front of an ignition source. So I have no margin of error if something dramatically goes wrong. At least if I choose not to wear my hard hat, face shield, balaclava, hearing protection, uh, my rubbers, my leathers, etc., and I still go and do that energized task without the additional PPE, and I, at least I know my shirt and pant will not ignite, continue to burn, and cause further injury unnecessary. I've got a baseline of protection. The other way to think about it is if I, if I choose a task-based approach, let's say, for example, I own a company, and I have 10 electricians. And we, we service uh, our customers' electrical needs. So my guys are out and about in their vans all day, every day, taking care of our commercial customers, whether that's chill, chillers, AC units, whatever the case may be. And my 10 guys do 10 energized tasks per day. Uh, and that's probably a very, very low number, but they would be getting in and out of that task-based protection approximately 10 times a day. So one, how much time are they wasting getting in and out? Uh, secondly, are they even getting in and out of it if no one's watching them? And uh, what is my exposure? Well, your exposure is 100 times a day on a uh, company that's 24-7, 365 from a service standpoint. That's over 35,000 exposures to where your people may or may not be wearing their PPE. That, that's not a safety program, where at least if they're going out into that environment in a baseline of protection, aka their daily wear, 
their uh, flame-resistant arc-rated jeans or flame-resistant arc-rated uh, pinley or button-down, you at least know there's that level of protection at a bare minimum. And then all they're required to do is add the additional layers of hard hat, face shield, rubbers, leathers, or if they need to take their 40 cal flash suit with them because that is part of the program when they're doing bigger gear. Bottom line, at the end of the day, it's just a difference between a safety program and something that can be very, very arbitrary and up to an individual and have tons of expo potential exposure to the, to the company and the employer. Makes sense. Uh, Derek, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This has been great. Jay, anytime. It certainly was fun. And uh, hopefully everybody gets to take a little nugget away from this. So give me a ring anytime. All right. Thanks. All right, buddy. Be good. Bye-bye. That wraps up episode 126 of EHS on Tap. Thanks to Bulwark for sponsoring the episode. You can find more information about the show and listen to on-demand episodes at ehsdailyadvisor.blr.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Google Play, iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time.